to Home Talk with Greg McKim on Tuesday, July 30th. If you're listening on a, a different date or if the show was announced on being a different date, that means it was pre-recorded and I'm not here. But I am here right now, flesh and blood, right, Eric? Barely made it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we had to scramble yeah. there for a sec because yeah. I, I thought uh, that you weren't going to make it, so I'm glad that you did. I was so did. close, yeah. and I made the decision at the bottom of the elevator to take the elevator instead of running up the stairs. I don't know which it would have been better. It's hard to tell. (laughs) So, well, you're listening. I'm your host, Greg McKim, and what is Home Talk? If you've not listened before, we're a show about home ownership, buying homes, selling homes, fixing homes up, financing homes, insuring homes, remodeling homes, flipping homes, owning homes as rentals, you name it. And how is it that I can talk about such a wide breadth of topics? Well, I've been in the business since the late 70s, started by swinging a hammer as a laborer and a carpenter. And then in the in 1991, I became a mortgage loan originator, which I've been doing ever since. Legally, I have to tell you my loan origination number, NMLS number, which is 106202. And I work for and am half owner of a mortgage company called Loanzilla. And that number is 67412. I'm also a licensed real estate broker with Rockwell Realty. So that's my experience. My goal of this show is to help listeners by using my knowledge and experience to help them, that is, make good financial decisions about about buying, selling, and owning homes like this. There are other shows like this, but I think you'll find mine a little unique. Why? Because I discuss things about the mortgage and real estate industry you likely won't hear anywhere else. Now, that might sound a little bit, um, what's the word I'd look, look for, um, egotistic, or what would be the word, Eric? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Good <laughs> enough, okay. A little braggadocious, Bragg- maybe. Braggadocious. Yeah. That, well, that's a really fancy word. I like that. <laughs> but the truth is, I do. Yeah. And you've noticed it. Absolutely. I bring up things you just don't hear about. That's and, true. And I've been doing this for 28 years and keep wondering why consumers don't get good information. I've got some theories about it, but we won't go into it. So, we air each Tuesday from 3 to 4 here on 1150 AM KKNW. During the show, feel free to call in to discuss any home-related topic you'd like at 425-373-5527. Again, that's 425-373-5527. And today we're going to talk about types of lending. There are so many different types of loans available in my Clients get confused, so we're going to cover that. And then we're also going to talk about HOA litigation, which just an actual real-life example came up with me last week, and it's very important if you own a condo to listen in to what I'm going to talk about here. You can also reach me off-air at 206-250-6545. Again, that's Greg at 206-250-6545, or email me at gmckim, G-M-C-K-I-M, at loanzilla.com, or visit loanzilla.com. Yes, it's just like Godzilla, but it's Loanzilla. And you can listen to this or prior shows by podcast at 1150kknw.com under audio archives. So before I get into different types of loans and the HOA litigation topic, I like to start each show with just a little update on interest rates. 
So since the beginning of the month, interest rates are f- essentially flat. Although if I look at today's 30-year fixed rate mortgages for a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac conforming loan, see, there you go. That's what we're going to talk about today. What the heck's a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac conforming loan? I'll tell you later. But it's the loan that 90% of people get. The rate's about an eighth higher than it was a month ago. That's insignificant in this industry. But we are in a flat rate environment right now. We don't see any pressure for them to go up or down. And that's what I expect to have continue for the next couple months with little blips here and there. The other thing I like to talk about briefly is the housing market. So my experience the last few months is that it's hit and miss. That it depends upon what area you are in, but I've had a couple people buy houses for underneath, uh, you know, underneath, under the list price without competing against multiple offers. But I, I talked to a couple other real estate brokers who have been in competing situations with homes still going over list price or right around. And then I talked last week to an appraiser who's now my friend that I've known since 1992. He says most of the work he's doing, the homes are going with multiple offers above list price, but he works with a lot of new construction. And new construction, there's not as, there's, it, it's a limited supply in high demand. So that makes sense to me. So that about wraps it up. As far as the interest rates and the real estate market, one last thing on the real estate market, I don't see a big change here in the next year. Probably going to stay about the way it is right now, again, depending upon the area, unless we have an economic uh, turndown. And then you might see some more softening like we have the last year. By the way, I want to encourage people to call in today and talk about things that interest them. I made this offer a couple weeks ago, and I'll extend it again today. The first three people who call in and um, my, my, let me ask, let me explain what I'd like you to call in to do. Call in and tell me, since you've been listening to the show for a while, or if you're a first-time listener, what's the number one, maybe two things that you would like to hear me discuss in the future? If you call in, the first three people that do that, I will give you a, a $100 Amazon gift certificate. And my friendly producer here, Eric, will answer the phone. He'll get all the information from you. And I promise I won't contact you about anything else after that unless you ask me to. But I won't take your name and email and start marketing to you. It's not nice without your permission. So let's jump into lenders. So consumers ask me all the time, you know, what, what types of loans are there? What, 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 are, what, are, what are different lenders? I'm going to give you a, a breakdown of, of that. So as a consumer, there are many variations, but I'll give you the three primary sources that you can go to as a consumer to get a loan. One would be straight to a bank. That would be Bank of America, maybe Home Street Bank, or your own bank, whoever you bank with. Another would be through a credit union. And the third main source would be through a mortgage broker, which where I work, which is Loanzilla. Now, mortgage brokers are a little unique. Most mortgage brokers do not lend their own money. We act as retail outlets for other lenders. For instance, a big lender around here is called Washington Federal. You can walk straight into a branch and get a loan. Or if you work with me at Loanzilla, I can get you a loan through Washington Federal because we're an approved broker with them. So a natural question as a consumer might be, well, why would I go through you, Greg, instead of going straight to the lender? First question that you might ask after that one, maybe this would be then the second question if you put them in some sort of sequential order, right, Eric? Okay, yeah. I do know how to count. It helps in the mortgage business. I have to get my calculator out when I go past that second digit, though. I can attest. You don't have the calculator out now, though. Oh, thanks. Yeah, He's my, yeah, he's my testimony. So 
You might ask, well, why would I go to you, Greg? Aren't you going to charge an extra fee? And the answer is no. In fact, we charge you the exact same fees if you went straight to Washington Federal. Think about it this way. If Dell Computer, and this is actually, this actually happened a while back. Dell Computer used to sell computers only retail. You could only get one straight from them. But then a while back, I don't know if they're still doing it, they started offering their computers through Walmart, of all places. Well, you, how could they compete with themselves? Well, they give it to Walmart at a wholesale price, and Walmart marks up the price of the computer anything they want. And clearly, they probably try to make it about the same, if not a little less than if you went straight to Dell. So to take it back to lending, same thing. Washington Federal gives us the rates that are available at a wholesale price so that we mark it up the same as if you went in to the bank branch. So in my opinion, the biggest advantage of working with a mortgage broker, I have all of Washington Federal's products available, plus another dozen lenders that you never heard of that can do things that you never even dreamed of. And those lenders also compete with each other routinely on how much they charge for their rates, so I shop them on your behalf. Does that mean the mortgage broker is the best option for you? No. I just think it's a really good option. And if you're shopping for loans, if it were, my, if it were me shopping for a loan, I would contact a bank. And if I belonged to a credit union, I'd contact a credit union, and I'd contact a mortgage broker. That's how I would do it. And you're looking for what we call in life value. It's not always the price. There's things to be said for when a person calls you back when you ask them to, who provides you with ideas and options and advice that you didn't hear from someplace else, but that's your decision to make. So you're shopping for a combination of price and service, which equals value, and those are the three places I would call if I were to get a loan. So if you were to go to, say, Bank of America to get a loan, where do they get the money to loan lend it? How about if you went through uh, Washington Federal or one of the lenders that, as LoanZilla, we work with that doesn't have retail outlets? Some lenders, one of the primary lenders we work with, called United Wholesale Funding, they used to be a bank. Now they only work through mortgage brokers like us. They're the number one biggest volume lender in the United States now that work through mortgage brokers. And they don't. you can't get a loan straight from them. They only work through brokers. So where do they get the money? Okay, this is where it gets a little complicated, but it does help to understand this when you're shopping for loans. And I'll tell you why as we proceed. Roughly... Don't quote me on this. Go look it up if you want online. But roughly 90% of all loans obtained by consumers in the United States, eventually, the money eventually ends up being um, raised from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's where most of the money for home loans come from. And what are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Well, let's go back in time a little bit. Let's talk about how loans used to work, and then I'll move forward into what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are. So... In the past, before the advent of Fannie Mae, which was established back in, um, oh gosh, I had this written down someplace once, but I forgot, 1940s or something, maybe 1930s, the way you got a loan is you walked into a bank, and the bank, let's just pretend the bank had a million dollars sitting in their deposits from all the people who put it in their savings and checking accounts. And they're paying out, say, for kicks, 3% on their savings deposits to their, to their customers. Well, in order to make money, what the bank would do is take that same million dollars that's sitting there in deposits and lend it to other people at, say, 5%. Make sense so far, Eric? Yep. Okay. So they're making 2% spread, right? And then they charge some fees and things, too, because that's how l lenders work. They don't just make money off the interest rate. 
Well, after the bank ran out of a million dollars, they couldn't lend anymore. Right? So they don't have any more money to lend. By the way, there, there's some really, really super complicated variations of what I'm telling you, but this is basically how it works. The other challenge is that if a bank had a million dollars in, the, in there and you, let's say they lent that money to 100 people, okay? And 50 of those people, a, a ridiculous number, defaulted on the loans, right? Now they don't have any money coming in. How do they, what if you came in to draw your savings out of the bank? There's no money. So they had to be super cautious who they loaned the money to. So only really highly qualified people could borrow money from that type of a lending institution. This is how it was up until the 1930s. And it was one of the reasons why there wasn't a lot of home ownership. Just rich people owned homes. People that could put 20% down, had a lot of income, had a lot of assets, things that banks liked because they were, felt secure, that they had a lot of collateral they could go after if the, lend, if the borrower went to default. The U.S. government recognized this, and a lot of other people too, that this was a, a challenge because it prevented the mass, vast majority of people in the United States from being able to own a home unless they bought it cash. So they, they formed this entity, and it was a private entity called the Federal National Mortgage Association, or Fannie Mae. And it, what it did was it, 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 it set up a, 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 a secondary market of bonds to fund loans for banks. So right now, Eric, if you wanted to go invest some money, like in retirement, you could buy stocks, mm-hmm. gold, antique cars. I know you have a few of those. <laughs> Not by choice. It's because yeah. I can't afford to upgrade. <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of those, yeah. Um, or you can buy bonds, and there's different types of bonds. Whenever you're buying a bond, what you're actually doing is you're lending money to somebody. When you go buy a bond, a, a municipal bond, you're lending mm-hmm. money to a, a government agency, and then they pay you back an interest rate over a period of time, and then they pay you back ultimately the whole amount at some point. That's how bonds work for Fannie and Freddie too as well. So two as well. That's kind of a repetitive thing. Um, so back, what happened was they set this, it's very complicated, but they set up this, this bond market. So now a bank, instead of lending their own money, could lend money that they were going to then get back from Fannie Mae. Well, how does that change anything? Okay, think about it this way. So a bank has a million dollars to lend now. And let's just pretend over a, let's say, um, let me, I've got, a, I've got a diagram of this, actually. Okay. So let's just pretend that a bank has a million dollars to lend, and they lend out, they lend out a million dollars, and they make, uh, let's use 100000 instead, because I got the numbers right in front of me, and I don't have to use my brain too much, okay? So they lend out $100,000, and they make a 1% loan fee when they do it, so that's 1000 bucks, right? That's their first area of profit. Then they make 3% on it. So for the first year, they make 1000 plus the interest of 3 they made $4,000. But now they're out of money. They can't lend it anymore because they only had $100,000 to lend. They could have made that a million or 10 million, right? Same idea. But if the bank loans the money and then turns around and immediately sells that loan to somebody else like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac and only makes a fee off of it, say they only make a fee of 1%, and that's it. So they made $1,000 off of that $100,000 loan. But they do, let's say, um, 200 of those in a year. They just made $200,000. Does that make sense? You're nodding your head. That makes sense to you? Yep. And that's basically the whole idea. So the banks can continue to lend over and over and over again. It's actually long-term in some ways more profitable for the banks, and they don't have as much risk because now you've spread this risk over 
millions and millions and millions of people who are buying and selling the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bonds instead of just that little bank that, uh, what's the guy's name in It's a Wonderful Life? Jimmy Stewart plays that, what's he play, that, that character? Uh, it's uh, Bailey. Yeah, Bailey. He's like, your, yeah. your, your money's not, right, it's not really over here. It's over in Fred's store. Right, right. <laughs> so and it's that, in Mary's house. It's in, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, the problem with that, you couldn't spread as much risk. So that's the, that's the main reason. that George Bailey. Thank you. Very yeah, good. Sorry, Very <laughs> it took a sec for the first name. So Pop that's it. why they set up Fannie Mae, and then and then the government, uh, Congress legislated in I think it was two. Let's see, nineteen. I got my notes here. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Sometime in the seventies, they they decided to have a competing organization called Freddie Mac. They're so similar, but they're they have slight differences. The idea was that it didn't make sense just to have one entity. Now, by the way, these were for-profit private entities, but there was this implicit. I don't know if it was implicit. Yeah, it was implicit because it wasn't explicit. There's this implicit idea of everybody that, oh, if anything were to go bad with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the U.S. government will step in and bail them out. Guess what? That happened. <laughs> in 2008, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac got too loosey-goosey with some of their loan rules. They call, we call them guidelines. The guidelines got too lenient, and the whole housing market was hurting, and the whole industry was in trouble, and the government came in and actually took over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and still run them today, and they're a profit center for the government. They use tax dollars to buy them, but it's paid back a lot of money. And there's ongoing discussions amongst financial analysts and people in Congress about whether or not they should get rid of Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or sell them back and make them private or have more entities like it to spread more risk. If you really want to research this stuff, listeners, go online. I'm not going to talk about it. So why am I talking about it? Because it has direct implications for you if you're shopping for a loan. The average person, 90% of people out there who are buying a house are going to get a loan through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. So that means if you walk into a bank, let's see, I'll, I'll mention one again, Chase or Bank of America or United Wholesale Mortgage through Loanzilla, those banks are adhering to the same underwriting guidelines that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac offer all lenders. So really, the banks all have the same loans. No, not quite. It's very close to what I said, but here's why it's slightly different. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have base guidelines. They, they will either do a loan or won't do a loan based on a guideline. But lenders will sometimes add additional risk guidelines on top of those. We call them overlays. So let's just say that a lender that you talk to says, well, we can't do that loan because we won't allow you to have more than 10 properties that have mortgages on them. Is that or is that a Fannie Mae guideline? I don't remember, by the way. But a lender might say that's our overlay. Now, why would a lender be more restrictive, Eric, than Fannie Mae Freddie Mac? Well, because it, it, maybe it's their money, you know. That, They're that, selling the loans to Fannie yeah. Mae, Freddie Mac, just like anybody else. Hmm. Why? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. That's why you're here. That's why I'm <laughs> you here. You tell me. <laughs> Here's a reason. So you take the, think of, I like to compare, because people get this usually, I like to compare lenders to insurance companies. Mm -hmm. The most competitive insurance companies take the least amount of risk. You get the best rates where they have the, the, the most stringent guidelines. Mm -hmm. So you, if you've got, say, a bad driving record, you have to pay higher rates but to a company because one company won't do it, but another company is more lenient. Same with lenders. So a lender will say, okay, here's the base Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac guidelines. However, we can get, we can get 
the rates from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac at a lower price than our competitors if we restrict our lending and don't do certain things. See, when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac enter into arrangements and agreements with banks, the, the lenders at that time say, how much risk do we want to take? Because when, when loans go bad, there's a shared risk between the lenders and Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac to some extent. Again, that's really wonky. I'm not going to talk about it. But the less, the, the fewer times that loans go bad, the less, the, the, the more profitable they are. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. So if Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac gets a, 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 a pipeline of loans from lender X that's more profitable than lender Y, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to give them better price on their loans. Keep in mind the rates are the same. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac give the same rates to every lender. This is one of the things that I'm getting at with all this. People say, well, what are your rates? I say, well, for a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, it's, this, is kind of, this is kind of flippant. Same as everybody else. Why? Because I don't have anything to do with rates. Neither does Bank of America, neither does Chase. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac don't even. The people who set interest rates every day are the people who buy and sell the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac bonds. Not even the Federal Reserve sets the rates. It's the people who buy and sell the bonds. Well, then what's the difference between one lender's rates than another? Not the rate. The rates are the same. It's how much they charge you in fees for the rate. We've had right. this conversation on my show three or four times. The lenders always make a fee. That's how they make their primary upfront money because they don't make money on the loan itself until a couple years go by. They make money on fees up front. So a lender might say, well, today a rate of 4%, our fee is negative point let's say negative 0.25, another lender might say our fee is a cost of 0.25. That's a half percent difference. On a $200,000 loan, that's 1000 bucks. Why? Because the first lender, the one that's more competitive, takes less risk, and so they can arrange to have lower fees with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Mm -hmm. There's other factors. They might have lower overhead. They might have other things. Now, should we take a break or we keep talking? Is there any rule we have to take breaks? I always forget. No, no rule. No, let's just keep talking. All right. All right. So, <laughs> No federal guidelines. No federal this. guidelines on that one. Okay. <laughs> So as a, this is one of the reasons why I've, I would, if I were a consumer, I would absolutely talk to a mortgage broker for the two things we just talked about. One is that I know which lenders do and don't have overlays. So if I'm trying to find you a loan and I know that you fit into this one lender who's got the best pricing, then I can save you money. But if I know that you need the lender that has, doesn't have the overlay, it's going to cost you more, but you can get the loan. I know that. And as we get into the HOA litigation today, I'm going to talk really specific about that, okay? So that's basically Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And then the, the, the three other big purchasers of loans, backers of loans, if you will, are FHA, VA, and USDA. They're not as significant as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but they're the next biggest chunk of, 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 of um, institutions that buy loans from lenders. And FHA is the Federal Housing Authority, and it was set up by the government specifically and also, there's also a bond market for that to ensure and um, for, to help provide a way to lend to people who are a little bit less credit worthy than lenders Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will offer. Although Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are so close to FHA now, there's hardly any difference anymore. But there are some specific things that FHA will do that a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac won't. They're very specific. VA is a special loan program. You have to be a veteran and you can do a loan for as little as zero, zero down. And, no and you can have all the closing costs paid by the seller or built into the interest rate, but you could walk in the door with nothing out of your pocket. The only other loan that you can come in with nothing out of your pocket is USDA, but that's specific for certain geographic areas. For instance, greater Seattle doesn't qualify for it. You could go 
couple years ago, I helped someone do, do one out in incarnation, but I don't know if that still qualifies. And also, you have to have, you have to, there's certain income limitations. You can't make too much money for it. So it's designed for lower income rural areas, USDA. Because it's for agricultural mostly? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it means. Uh-huh. Yeah. U.S. Department of Agriculture mm-hmm. loan. Okay. So now those are, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are what we call conforming loans. Why? Where did that word come from? Because the lenders who work through them, and if, if you do a loan with them, conform to their guidelines. That makes sense? And they're also sometimes called conventional. Why? Because they're more conventional than, say, FHA, VA, or USDA. Then there's jumbo loans. Jumbo loans. Why do jumbo? What, what does that mean? It's w- certain loan amounts. Once you pass a certain loan amount, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, they won't buy them. They won't, there's too much risk for them. There's not enough of a market in their bond market pool. They, they, they structure the stuff, and they have limits, and those limits go up all the time. So right now, I think the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac limit in King County is like 607 or something. But when I got in the business in 91, it was like 180. And it keeps going up and up and up. And it's different in different counties. It's lower in some other counties in Washington State. So once you get over those limits, then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac don't buy loans anymore. And so then what? Well, there's if you went to a lender that has a jumbo loan, how are they going to lend you the money? Are they going to do it the old-fashioned way I talked about at the beginning, where they take it out of their own deposits and they lend to you? Possibly. That's called a portfolio loan. That's all that Washington Federal does. Washington Federal only lends from their own deposits, Eric. They don't, they don't sell their loans to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, nobody. And so they, their, their rates and, t- and fees tend to be a little bit higher, but they do things that Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and other lenders won't do. And they've been around a long time. They have enough assets to make all this work. So there's nothing wrong with that type of loan, but they are higher risk, and therefore they're more expensive. So that's, that's where jumbo falls. So a bank like Washington Federal or or Bank of America, or any my lenders I deal with, uh, United Wholesale, they have jumbo products. They're not sold to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. So let's just take a, let's take a lender that isn't a bank. Well, what they'll do is they'll sell that loan instead of to Fannie or Freddie. They sell it to another jumbo investor, places like GE Capital, you know, part of General Electric, or or Prudential Insurance. They've got these that mortgage-backed securities there, and they buy the jumbo loans. So you have to adhere to those guidelines too. And as you get into jumbo territory the lending guidelines become more restrictive because they're slightly higher risk. Bigger loan, more risk. And there's less of them, which isn't, the risk isn't as spread out as far. Okay? So those are, the, those are the main categories alone, Fannie, Freddie, and then FHA, VA, USDA, and then and Jumbo. Now we get into the kind of crazy stuff. And this other stuff is either called non-conforming or there's a new term for it lately called non-quality mortgage. After the 2008 meltdown, Congress legislated a bunch of stuff, and they have new terms. They like to always come up with new terms for things. And one of them is a quality mortgage, which is a Fannie Freddie type of product, or a non-quality mortgage, a non-QM quality mortgage. So for you as a consumer, who cares? I just call it non-conforming, but you can call it whatever you want. So where, where would a non-conforming? Okay, these are products that aren't purchased by Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, who buys them? Well, there's pools of people out there, again, who have put together mortgage-backed securities, investors, or sometimes they might just be a big bank who decides that they're going to lend on these, and they'll lend to multiple other lenders, and they'll do things that Fannie and Freddie won't. They'll do things like, for instance, stated income loans. They're still out there where you just state your income, and you don't have to prove it. I've got loans available where a person doesn't have any income at all, 
None. Zero. They don't make income. They don't have anything. And how do they qualify for a loan? By assets. So let's say I had a certain amount of assets and the lender has a formula and they calculate how much from those assets you should be able to draw on over a certain period of time that they're comfortable with and you can qualify for a loan. And that's a good fit for people that say have retired, don't have any income. Typically with a person who's retired that has quite a bit in assets, they usually have a small income, some social security or pension, but it's not enough to qualify them. So we combine that with the assets. That's an asset-based loan. Then there's different types of loan. And the, the, the more risk the lender takes, the higher the rates get on these things. So you get, like, like right now, let's just say a 30-year fixed conforming Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, maybe at zero loan fees, around 4%. You start to get into these things, you start climbing into the fives and sixes sometimes. Depends upon, how, you know, depends upon the situation. But for a person that can't qualify for anything else, who cares? They want to buy a house. What are they going to do, right? And that's, so it's, it's, and those rates relative to history aren't that bad anyway. So um, non-QM loans, another type would be um, where the, um, oh, I think I just lost my train of thought. So I talked about the asset-based one, Eric, where you just draw down assets. Um, oh, bank statement loans. So these, these apply a lot to self-employed people who have strange cash flow. So instead of looking at the net profit of a business, the lender will simply take 12 months of your bank statements, look at your gross receipts, they don't care what your expenses are, and just say, okay, we'll base a loan on that. And these things, by the way, are, are highly sensitive to credit and, and reserves and down payment because the lender is taking risk in the area of income, right? So they're not going to let you do it with 5% down. They're not going to let you do it with bad credit. And if they do, boy, it's going to cost an arm and a leg. I don't even know who would do it. So those are, those, there's a lot of lenders out there that will do that. Again, I, I am going to, you know, going to promote the idea of a mortgage broker. You know, you walk into a bank, they're not going to do that stuff. Credit union, they don't even know what you're talking about. You go to a mortgage broker, yeah, we got, we got people to do that. We, we not, and if I don't, if I'm not approved with one, I can get approved with one tomorrow because I know where to find them. It's a matter of how many we do. And so now the, la the next step is what we call private money or sometimes called hard money. Give you an example of that. Somebody wants to buy a house that's falling off a cliff. No lender is going to lend on that in regular day, you know, banks. But a hard money lender might, if you can prove to them that you know how to put the house back up on the cliff, fix it up, and sell it, they might charge 12% interest, 2% minimum fee up front. If you don't pay it off in six months, they drop the interest rate to 20. But I've done loans for people like that. Why? Because they make so much money off the project. I helped somebody do one recently. And there's dozens of lenders out there, and they range anywhere from about six percent to fifteen, sixteen percent in interest. But when somebody can put together a project, I had one where the guy he found a lot that was the most amazing view lot I've ever seen in my life. It sits on uh, the east side of Lake Sammamish, and it had, the lot had already been completely um, platted and zoned and permitted and everything for a beautiful luxury home. But the person who had it got in financial trouble, sold it to my borrower, and he built a home on it. It's going to sell for about $4 million, and he's going to make about a million bucks. So for him, and he has, but he has the background. He has the contracting background. He has all the experience. In you and me, Eric, we couldn't get that loan. Yeah, <laughs> just, probably not. <laughs> yeah, say, so, Greg, you used to swing a hammer, huh? And you know how to use a skill saw? I don't think so. <laughs> I'd probably have a better shot at it than you, but not much. So that's kind of a litany of, now, by the way, these types of loans I'm talking about, that's a sliver of the industry, but they exist. And those loans, 
Sometimes they're just a group of maybe 20, 30 people, maybe 100 people just together and pool money together. Private money. Just you and me and go grab half a dozen of our friends and we, we, you know, we have to meet certain lending institution rules and but, but uh, usury rules. But it's pretty lenient because it's a commercial loan. The commercial loans have much fewer guidelines as far as regulatory restrictions as conforming loans and other loans we talked about earlier. So does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you think as a consumer it makes any difference in your life to hear that stuff? You can be honest. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. You know, um, seems like a lot of people are thinking about refinancing here with the news being that the um, uh, rates are going to be dropping or presuming that the uh, the Federal Reserve will be dropping rates. Um, so, you know, it's always good to be thinking about these uh, loan conditions and, you know, yeah. getting the facts on it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's probably a couple handful of people out there that never had heard of this and, and they're in the market right now for shopping for a loan and they, mm-hmm. they call somebody up and they say, we can't do that. And then somebody else says we can do it and they don't understand why. Well, hopefully some of my explanation, you know, sheds yeah. some light on that. Um, one of the things to ask, I run into this all the time where one of the lenders I deal with says, I can't do that. And I say, is that you or Fannie Freddie? Because if it's you, then I'll go find a, a Fannie Freddie lender that, that, that doesn't have an overlay on that specific guideline. And that's part of the beauty of being a mortgage broker. That's why I don't work for a bank. I feel like I'd be handcuffed if I work for a bank. So if I can't do it, sorry, I can't help you. As a mortgage broker, I can pretty much do anything. And the cases where I can't, I know who can. I, use, I often refer people off to retail competitors that I, I, I'm on good terms with because my number one objective is to help that borrower do what they want to do. So I'm going to go now, and I'm not going to take a break till the end of the show today. I'm going to talk about something that came up last week that if you, if you own a condo, this is really important to understand, particularly if you've bought a condo in the last five years, it's brand new construction, I should say. It was built in the last five years. So quite often when you buy a brand new construction, especially condos, well, almost all new construction has some sort of warranty, but they expire over a period of time. And they're, they're, the home warranties are different for condos and single-family homes. And because of potential construction defaults, um, attorneys will contact condos that have been built in the last five years before the, the warranty expires, and they'll say, let's do a forensic inspection to make sure before your warranty expires there isn't anything that the, that the builder did improperly. In fact, I bought a commercial property in 2001. It had just had that happen down on Main Street. And what a forensic inspection means is that they, instead of a, home, a regular home inspector, just walk around the house and do visuals. A forensic inspection will take a piece of siding off, maybe six feet by two feet wide, and look to see if the underlayment is secured properly with a proper sort of vapor barrier. They'll peel back certain flashings and stuff to see if the things are nailed down right. They, that's forensic. They dig into it. And um, the place I bought... Uh, it, it ended up we we had we filed a lawsuit. This is all the money was spent before I bought the commercial space, and and when I when I when I owned it, the, we we won, and the insurance company of the developer had to pay out roughly one point two million dollars for us to do retrofitting and fix things. So why am I bringing this up? Well, last week somebody called me. He has a property listed in a in a condo, and he had a buyer ready to go. Buyer was they were all ready to move forward, and found out oh the HOA on July second filed a lawsuit against the developer for construction defects. It's a litigation. And now, guess what? His buyer can't get a lender. That's bad. 
Now, this, this seller is not my seller. He's somebody else's listing, but he was referred to me by one of my borrowers who said, hey, Greg will probably find a solution for you. Well, I said, I'll do my best. And I went through about four or five days and got shot down, and I found one lender that'll do it. That means there's probably two or three, but it's a very, very unique. And that lender is going to charge a rate of about 2% higher than anybody else out there. So what, what's the moral of this story? What's the point of this whole story? So if you own in a condo that, that, that you need to be, you need to stay informed about what's going on. And when something like this starts, you need to be involved in it right away because his property is probably worth, if there was no HOA litigation going on right now, Eric, $660. they are negotiating right now in the 600 range. Why? He can't sell it. He already bought another home wants to sell this home. He's thinking about turning a rental, not wild about doing it. But since as soon as you dry up the lending pool, guess what else dries up, Eric? The buyers. Yeah. Because very few people have cash. Right. And very few people know where to find the types of loans that I found for them. So I'm working with them together jointly right now to see if I can figure out a solution that satisfies both of them. But if, if here's, here's the, here's the two big challenges. One is that the HOA did talk about this in, in board meetings and so forth, but very few of the owners showed up to the meetings and had long conversations about the implications. This happens all the time. Not that they wouldn't have changed their decision to litigate, Eric, but they need to know what's going on. There's 35 units in there. At any given time, and it, you know, there's probably two or three people listing or thinking about listing, right? All of a sudden, their home property drops. They might not be able to sell it at all. What if you had a, dr- a job transfer or something happened where you have to move? What are you going right. to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? All of a sudden, your property becomes unmarketable unless you just drop it to nothing. Well, that sounds like, you know, potential lawsuits well, uh, for the condo. Yeah, I don't think that there's any grounds for a, for a, an HOA member to sue the HOA mm-hmm. for having sued on their behalf. It would be, first of all, you know, you're, you're privy to it because there's board meetings and minutes that are available, so you're aware of it. Right. You have the right to have input, and it's a, something that's voted on. Hmm. Now, I don't know the specifics on this is if—, if if the 30 usually when usually whenever you do something that's of significance in an HOA the not just the board votes on it but the members at large vote on it but according to this client I talked to who he says that they did vote on it and what happens is people don't show up to meetings they give a proxy to somebody else and they really don't follow what's going on so the big lesson I'm telling you out there is make sure you know what's going on in your HOA yeah keep aware of things be involved because I don't know about you, but if I knew if my property value all of a sudden just in one week dropped by fifty thousand dollars and I had to sell, I'd be pretty upset. Okay. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, so the next thing is so we start looking for lenders. So here's the big problem. Why would a lender not want to lend on a property that is in litigation? Why wouldn't they want to lend on it? Well, you know, they're afraid of losing money always. Yeah, and how can they lose money in a situation like that? What could happen? Well, if the, the, the next, if, you know, someone defaults on their uh, mortgage, then the value of the, the property okay. is going to be lower than I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the loan I'm is. I'm going to draw it out here. Okay. Yeah. So we don't know at this point how much, it, let's just pretend they lose the litigation. So the lender thinks to ourselves, well, we don't know how much it's going to cost to make the repairs to the property. Sure. Let's just pretend that the repairs to the property would be a half a million dollars. We don't know yet, okay? So 500000 
divided by 35 units. That means every homeowner is now on the hook for $14,000. Okay? Now, maybe they have that in reserves, maybe they don't, but all of a sudden, as a bank, the borrower who I'm lending to has to come up with $14,000, but that's open-ended. I don't know if it's going to be $14,000 or $50,000. Right. When I don't know what kind of expense my borrower may be faced with down the road, how can I lend to them? Mm-hmm. So the challenge, and this is a real important key to this. Now, I'm on an HOA board and president, and the way we would approach this would be if we got that, went down this road, and they, this, this HOA hasn't done this yet, and I've been em- emphasizing to the seller over and over again, you need to have the HOA do the following, Eric. Go get bids. Know where you stand. Know if it's going to cost $100,000 to make these repairs or a million. Then you'll have some lending options because some of the lenders I spoke with, Washington Federal being one of them, said, we'll consider, they always say consider, but that means as long as everything falls in place, we'll consider doing this as long as we know what the overall cost could be so we can manage what it would be if they lose litigation. But they don't even have that done. So that's a key thing. Know what every, and I, hopefully that HOA will, he'll, he'll, he'll present this to them and they'll go get that. Even though Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, just so you know, won't do it, period. It's not an overlay. They just won't do it. So you, this is, you go to a lender, a portfolio lender, the non-conforming slash non-QM, likewise in federal, and you start talking to them. But if you don't have something that they can sink their teeth into, they're not going to do it. So I found a lender. This is, going down the scale, you know, they cost more. It says, we'll do it. We don't care if it's in litigation as long as the unit itself doesn't have any structural defects that an appraiser would call out on a standard appraisal. And it doesn't. These are all things that right away, you know, it's not going to, there's not water leaking through the roof. There's no dangerous railings that are going to break and you're going to fall off of a balcony. It's just stuff that it should be addressed because long-term, if you don't, you could have water penetration, and, and that's the main thing because that's the main problem with any building, water penetration. But So this lender will do it. But it was one, I, I checked with a lot of lenders, and then I posted something to a, 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 a bulletin board I subscribed to as a broker that, that puts these things out there, and one of them contacted me. But the moral of the story is this. If you live in an HOA, particularly one that was built in the last five years, you need to be on top of what's going on because it's very common for these forensic inspections and developer lawsuits for construction defects to be filed, because because once if you don't do it by the time that the um, that the warranty expires, you don't have any recourse. And mo- usually, what happens is it drags on for a while, and then the property gets in trouble. So another another challenge that can happen is that if the pers- the people um, need to move, they'll turn the property into a rental. And at a certain point, if you have an HOA that has a, a high percentage of rentals, it can become problematic with financing. Not all the time, but it can. So when a lender looks at a, an HOA, they, they take a couple of risk uh, factors into account that they don't with a single-family home. And, well, I just take that back. When a lender lends on a single-family home, one of the risk factors is, are you living in it or is it a rental property? And a rental property is a higher risk because I'll tell you why. <laughs> okay. A lender says, if you're living in a house, the odds of you not making the payment are less than if you don't live there. When right. push comes to shove, if you have two properties, one you live in and one you don't, you're going to keep the one, make payments on the one you live in. That's number one. Number two is when you don't live in a property, pride of ownership, even though I, even though as a, as a tenant, I'm mean, a landlord, you own the property, still it's, it's possible for a renter to be less 
careful about taking care of the property. But the sure. first one, the first one's the biggest one, right? Okay. So they look at, look at HOAs the same way. If an HOA has a really high percentage of renters in it, that means the same problem. You, everybody off-site has the same issue with their, if things get tough, they might not make the payment on those, and you have the potential for the property not being cared for quite as nice. So mm-hmm. they look at that. Now, it used to be that on every condo, a lender would always look at the what they call the owner-occupancy ratio and lend on. They had certain guidelines. I think it had to be at least 60% or I don't remember what it was. Now lenders don't do that on every single loan, but they do on some, especially the lower down payment loans and so forth. And so if you, we, we get into these things we call, I call them death spirals, but let's just say you had a property that had, you know, 100 units. And let's say the cutoff is you got to have at least 50 of them owner occupied, but you get in a position like this one where you can't sell it. So pretty soon people are renting it. And the more people that rent it, after a while, you can't get financing on it. And so you can't sell, this happens. There was a big complex out in the um, Redmond called 6001. There's like a thousand units out there. It's the complex that has duck ponds and stuff. It's mm-hmm. built. And it, 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 I, there was a point there, I think, that like 20% of them were owner-occupied. Wow. And, and nobody could get a loan in there because it just it was, it was known for this. You just couldn't get a loan in there. It was all rentals. But it slowly turned itself around. But this is a problem if you get into – now, lenders ha, are more lenient on the owner-occupancy ratios in condos than they used to be. But they could turn around and change that tomorrow. Right. They, I've seen lenders. In fact, last month, this month, lenders changed something that was a, 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 a really advantageous guideline for a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac product on July 20th. It went away. And, it, and it, there's thousands of people that can't get a specific type of loan because of it. I've had loans where I get the loan already to pack, ready to go. I got everything set. I'm about to submit it to them. I call them up and they say, oh, we discontinued that product yesterday. So the point of this is that just because lenders today don't look at owner-occupancy ratios for HOAs as strictly as they, they could turn around, change it, and do it tomorrow. Yeah. So it's a good idea to have your property be as marketable as possible and try not to be forced into turning a rental. That's the moral of the story. Again, I probably beat this to death, but you get why I brought it up, right? Yeah, and you know, to this is something that I'd never heard of uh, before. And so, as you mentioned at the top of the show, how you bring up stuff that uh, other shows don't and that you may not have heard of before, that's one of them right there. This has I had bi- no idea. Big implications, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, if this guy can't sell this, pro- hoping to sell it in the 650, 660 range, and he's going to get 600 for it, that's a lot of money. Hmm. Yeah, the que- absolutely. The, yeah, the question would be, I mean, this is if, if I were on the board, I would say, okay, before we take another step forward, let's assess what it's going to cost to do this stuff because maybe it's cheaper for us to do it than to not be able to sell our homes. I don't know because I don't know what the costs are. Let's figure that out before we start filing lawsuits. Now, there might have been a deadline, Eric. I'm not privy to any of that. They might have had to file it by July 2nd. They, sure. they can still go back right now and get bids to see what it would cost, but that's a natural step, right? One thing that's interesting, so without naming anybody, the building that I own, that commercial building, the developer, uh, we, we won the case, and the developer's insurance company paid out the $1.2 million. The developer has gone on since then. That's like, like 2003, I think I bought the place. Yeah. I always wondered, how did they get insurance to build again? <laughs> I don't know. I guess the insurance companies uh, must just be either charging super high premiums or something because you'd think that if the insurance company saw that the last time they lost $1.2 million, that they'd be really reluctant to insure them on another project. 
Well, not to get political, but, <laughs> you know, as we've seen from the president's story, there are a lot of things that happen kind of behind the scenes uh -huh. that uh, we, we're not always privy to um, that uh, help people <laughs> out that maybe shouldn't be getting loans, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, because I know a lot of people in the building trades. And um, if you've been around building long enough, you know, certain inspectors are less picky than others. Mm -hmm. Once they develop relationships, sometimes they assume that you're doing a good job when maybe you thought you were, but your crew didn't do a good job. These are human dynamics. You're not, I'm not yeah. saying that the inspectors are purposefully not inspecting properly, but they make errors. They overlook things. They're they're probably overworked. They're probably they probably if they called in right now, they I'm overworked, underpaid. Don't expect me to see everything. I mean that's typical kind of a you know refrain from anybody, right? But those, those that human element exists, and so you wonder yeah. well, why didn't why didn't the inspector come out and notice that these handrails are so loose that they're a hazard? I mean, didn't they come out and shake them? Or maybe they shook one of them that was solid. I, this I'm referring back to the the place that I bought, the commercial condo that had residential above us. Um, why didn't they notice that there were that the that the flashing on the on the roof and things weren't laid down properly that could uh, uh, you know have points for for water entry? I don't know. Maybe it was just overwhelming. They couldn't do it. I don't know the answer. You know, you put your faith in them, but you know they're 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 fallible just like any other human being. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see if I got any other interesting things to talk about today. I'm gonna I'm gonna recap what we talked about. So, lending sources as a consumer, your primary sources are banks, credit unions, and mortgage brokers. And if you go online and look for loans, basically that's what you're looking at. There are some slight, uh, there's some some minimal difference. Like I think at one point some of the stock brokerage firms, Merrill Lynch had their own lending department, but usually they're still operating somewhat as a bank, credit union, or mortgage broker. 90% or so of all loans to the United States are funded by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That means that the banks lend you money that they've actually already promised and guaranteed to deliver to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac based on Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lending risk guidelines. So as a consumer, when you go and talk to different lenders, you're actually, every one of them, if they have a Fannie, Mae, Fannie or Freddie 30-year fixed rate mortgage, they all have the same rates. Lenders, of course, want you to think they have the lowest rates, but they, they're all the same. The difference between a bank, one, I mean, one lender, be it a bank, and another, be it a mortgage broker, is the fee they charge you for that rate. And if you've listened to my prior shows or you haven't, go to my podcast and I'll, sh I'll tell you exactly how to shop for a home loan. You never ask for a rate quote. You always tell them what rate you want and ask for a fee quote. That's how you shop for home loans. Then there's FHA, VA, and USDA. Oh, first, when you go to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, some lenders will add their own risk overlays to those. And then there's Fannie Mae, I mean, FHA, VA, and then there's the non-conforming lenders that'll do things like stated income loans, bank statement loans, asset-driven loans. They lend out of their own portfolios of, of money, which is their deposits from their other customers, or maybe they sell them to other investors other than Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Then there's private or hard money, which is really for special development sort of projects and people that are in a really, really tough position. So that's the recap of the first part of the show. The second part of the show is if you have an HOA that was a condo that was built in the last five years, I, it's either three or five. I get a little fuzzy on that. But I would make sure if you bought into a condo that was built in the last five years that you would check before you built in it, I mean, before you buy in it or if you're in it already, any, any talk about filing litigation against the developer for construction defects. 
make sure they think these things through, how it's going to affect the marketability of, the pro- of, the, of your home because you're going to limit lending sources for buyers. How do you mitigate that? One way to mitigate it is to discuss, is this the best approach? For instance, you might decide, let's just make the repairs ourselves, get them done, and then sue. If you do that, you're fine because the repairs are done. All the money's been accounted for. Now you're just trying to collect on the money. You have to talk to an attorney about that. I don't know if that's a viable option. But if you did that, then the whole Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac thing goes away altogether. Now, if you don't have the money to do it, that's another thing. One thing to think about if you live in an HOA, I should say condo. HOAs and condos get mixed up. I'd covered that on another show once. But let's say you live in a condo or an HOA, is that if you need to do work around the place and you don't have the money, you can either do a special assessment and charge everybody a one-time or you know a, a installments, or you can get an HOA loan. There are banks out there that loan to associations, and they don't lien the individual properties. They don't lien any real estate. What they do is they lien the dues. I'll give you an example, and I'm trying to promote this where I live. It's, it's kind of tough. It's like herding cats. But right now, out of our dues, 150 a month goes into our reserves. Well, we would get a loan of about $750,000 for that same 150 a month. We only have 200,000 in our in our reserves right now. So we'd have another $500,000 which we need and our dues would not go up. Now, this is something if I were a homeowner in a condo HOA and we needed money, I would absolutely be exploring this. We do not have time to go over the pros and cons of it today. It's something I would pull the trigger on a heartbeat where I live, but I am the president of the association, but I'm not Napoleon. I don't, I'm not emperor of the, of the association. I don't, I don't get to make blanket uni, uni, unilateral decisions. Maybe they should uh, just elect benevolent dictators to yes, these right. HOA condo boards. <laughs> yeah, Plato's Republic. That's yeah. right. So that about wraps it up today. Um, we've got, what, how much time we got left here? We got about a minute. About a minute. Anything you'd like to ask about what we covered today, Eric? No, I, I, I think you've covered some fascinating uh, points and uh, look forward to finding out. You're what always you got so next generous week. with your comments. I don't know how fascinating they are. I will say if any of you have insomnia, just turn this back on again and probably. <laughs> well, I know I know now that I really would think, you know, think it over. Think uh, if I wanted to buy a condo for an investment or a place to live, there's more to it than your average person thinks, I think. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. That, 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 I just scratched the surface there. Yeah. But, you know, but on my, one of my other shows I talked about, I forget the name of that show, but um, it's in there someplace. But uh, you can go- Yeah, check out the podcast. Yeah. That's, I, I talk about there's pros and cons of owning a condo. And you can always call me, Greg McKim, 206-250-6545. I will be back on the air next Tuesday. What day of the week is that, Eric? You know, off the top of your head? <laughs> next Tuesday no, is not, Tuesday. I mean, yeah, you smart ass. <laughs> okay, well, I opened myself up for that one. <sighs> Where did I put my phone? What what, what day of the month? Uh, August 6th. August 6th. So my plan for August 6th is to talk about low down and zero down loan options. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll have that already, but that is my plan. So <laughs> tune in next week, 3 o'clock on August 6th for another rousing version of Home Talk. Have a great day.